0: Well, if you've got your Bibles, uh, I'm going to invite you to go to the Book of Ruth, as Jeff said at the top of the service. Uh, we are in Ruth three uh, this morning, and uh those of you who've been worshiping with us, you know, uh, but if you're a guest this morning, uh, we are going through uh, the scripture, looking at different characters and really kind of identifying how God has blessed them, uh, specifically how God has used lots and lots of different people. Have you ever noticed that uh, we worship a God who doesn't just do things cookie cutter? Uh, God loves to use all different kinds of people with all different kinds of gifts. And so we've been going on this journey uh, looking at some of the characters. Old Testament, New Testament. Some are more familiar, others may be a little more uh, obscure or people were less familiar with. Uh, and really just wondering and asking the question God, how did you use that person and um, their gifts and their skills uh, to bless uh, the situation at the time, but also to, here we are couple thousand years later, continue to live into those blessings. And many of you have uh, gone through and you've done the gift assessment. And, uh, and so we're going through now and kind of looking at these gifts, uh, little by little, there's the gifts. And today we're going to look at the gifts of interpersonal, interpersonal, uh, gifts. And, uh, this is kind of an interesting gift, and I, I like the image because it's a couple of coffee cups, um, and my kids would tell you uh, they think that's all I do is sit and drink coffee and, and hang out with people, and there's some truth to that for sure, but the thing about interpersonal gifts um, is that We all need this gift uh, in some shape or form. And uh, I do not naturally have this gift, and I have to work at this particular gift. It's not natural to me. In fact, my kids would uh, tell you all day long, Dad, you are like the most awkward person ever. Um, Dad, read the room, you know, or somebody will make a comment, it just goes right over my head, because I can walk into a room or I can be having a conversation with someone or a group of people and I just completely miss what's going on. I'm missing the social cues. So I have to work really, really hard for this, and I just wanted to acknowledge this is not uh, my gift. But according to this author, about 10% uh, of the folks uh, who have done this uh, assessment have interpersonal gifts as their primary gift, and about 10 per second. 10% uh, have this as a, a secondary uh, gift. And so we're going to look at this uh, whole uh, idea of uh, what it means to be gifted uh, by God um, with interpersonal gifts. And, and the author writes on, on page 21 in this book, interpersonal gifts help you uh, interact with, care for, and build relationship with others. So it's really important uh, that we uh, are leaning into these gifts, whether you've got a little or a lot. One of the things I like about... Um, this particular the readings is the author reminds us that even though you might be naturally gifted we all still have to work at these gifts and so there's an opportunity to grow in these gifts and I've used the illustration of of sports players how they might be natural athletes but they still have to put in the time to practice and really uh, lean into uh, their giftedness and, and, and grow their giftedness and, and so today we're going to be looking at the life of Naomi. And as I think about people with uh, the gifts of uh, interpersonal gifts, it's, it's, it's wonderful uh, to, to have some examples around us. And you've probably gone into a meeting before. You've been in with a group of people. And you just, you look at that person and you, you walk away from that conversation going, man, that person really knew how to connect with people. And we can all think of people who've got this gift, this extraordinary gift. There's just something uh, about them. They're, they're people persons, right? They're, there's a magnetism uh, about there, maybe even a charisma. But they, they draw you in. They invite you in uh, to a, a relationship, and you feel safe there. You feel comfortable there. And we've also got uh, lots of uh, experience uh, and examples of people who are not so gifted, right? And if you're sitting next to one of those people this morning, uh, don't elbow them. Um, But but I'm one of those people, you know, where it's just, it's not natural, you know, it's just, man, that person is awkward, or that was a strange conversation, right? Because they're just missing all the social cues. Um, and so we're going to look at uh, Naomi this morning, who I think personally has got uh, Jedi-like skills uh, as it relates to interpersonal gifts. And one of the things I like about Naomi is, um, is that she not only uses her gift uh, for herself, but she uses her gift for others. And we're going to read here in a little bit and look at how her gifts not only impact the situation at hand, but for generation after generation um, in which we all ought to be thinking about uh, how our gifts are being leveraged and used even for future generations. And so when we have a conversation with someone, we're interacting with them and and developing a, a relationship. It's really important that we're thinking about you never know what hangs in the balance of that conversation and how it could impact uh, both the other person and then uh, future generations. So that was my intro to give you time to find the book of Ruth. Is everybody there? Hope you got your Bibles with you. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you uh, that you are God who comes to us, who meets us, and who invites us uh, to walk with you and to serve you. And so, Lord, as we uh, Open our hearts and minds to this very familiar story in the Old Testament. God, we pray that you would encourage us and strengthen us and even challenge us. God, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable. For you are indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, back in 2019, Malcolm Gladwell came out with a new book. And uh, some of you know I'm a big Malcolm Gladwell fan. Uh, And one of the reasons why I like Malcolm Gladwell as an author uh, is he's kind of an interesting-looking guy, for one. But I like his writing style. He's a storyteller. And so what he does is he tells lots and lots of stories, and he uses lots of data uh, to kind of support uh, the point that he's really trying to get at. And so in 2019, he wrote this book called Talking to Strangers, Uh, what we should know about the people we don't know. And really the hypothesis behind this book is that when we have a conversation with someone else, uh, when we are engaging with them, we oftentimes think that we know what's going on. We oftentimes uh, overestimate even uh, how much we are reading the room and really understanding what is going on with all the dynamics. And so this book is really all about interpersonal uh, relationships. um, And many of us think, well, I'm pretty good at that. And then when you read this book, you're like, oh boy, maybe I'm not so great. Because when we misread the room or misread a relationship, a situation, there can be really bad consequences and things that we oftentimes don't even think about. And so, if I were to sum up this book, I would say, in all of your relationships with other people, be humble. And when you think you might know what's going on in the relationship, be humble. And be patient with people. Be patient with the situation because there's oftentimes uh, lots of stuff going on. One of the case studies he talks about in this book, uh, it it was actually uh, written uh, in 2017, a Harvard economist by the name of Sendil Melanthin. And what this Harvard economist did is he went to the state of New York, and he wanted to really kind of look at and explore this whole idea of judges and people standing before uh, judges They're in the New York court system. And so the, he just asked one question. The question was simply this, before the judges, they, they spent about six years looking at lots and lots of data, interviewing uh, 550,000 and looking at 550,000 different cases. And the question before the judge was simple, and there was a group of judges uh, in the court system, was bail. Should we let this person out on bail? And so there's the person, you know, 550,000 people standing before a judge. uh, And the question, and they've got, you know, the the court case, and they've got, you know, all the information. And then the judge, their job is to have a conversation with the person. And, of course, the person is trying to... uh, uh, convince the judge to let them out on bail. So do I let them out on bail or do I hang on to them uh, and keep them in prison? That was it. 50-50 shot uh, with all this. And so uh, what he did is he designed a software uh, program, uh, an AI program, if you will, uh, to make the same decision. And the computer, it only had two pieces of information. The crime that was committed... Uh, accused of, and the age of the person, that's it. Whereas the judges, they had all this information, including a live interview. And so when they tallied all the data up, they discovered that the computer outperformed these judges by 25%. Remarkably, these computers had such little information, and they made better decisions about the people who uh, they released on bail, and those they didn't. And they based the, the, the deciding factor was simply: will they re-offend? Will they, you know, end up back in court because they've done something, committed another crime? And the computer beat these judges consistently. 550,000 different cases they looked at. Which ought to give us a little bit of pause and question our own ability as we're thinking about how we are reading other people. How confident or maybe overconfident are you with your interpersonal skills? So with that... I want us to pivot to Naomi, who I think had extraordinary interpersonal skills. And I think all of us can learn from Naomi and the situation and how we can improve our interpersonal skills. So uh, Naomi lived about 1,100 years before Jesus, so a long time before uh, Jesus. And uh, she was a Jewish woman living in the Bethlehem region. And Naomi uh, met a guy, a Limelech, and uh, this young Jewish woman met this young Jewish man, and they got married. And uh, like uh, any young couple, a uh, Jewish couple of the day, they had a couple kids, Malon and Kilion, two Jewish boys, and they're raising them up. And I can about imagine uh, everything about Naomi uh, in her life. Her name literally means pleasant. Naomi means pleasant, and so as I think about Naomi and her life, I think of the movie Pleasantville, if you saw that movie. Everything's good. Sunny and 75 every day for Naomi, because her name is Pleasant. And I'm thinking that they probably had a a, a four-bedroom tent, a a two-camel garage, and they probably joined down at the donkey lodge somewhere. I mean, there was just this Jewish... Story. Everything was going great in Bethlehem for Naomi. But then there was a famine in the land, and they had to leave. They had to go somewhere else. And so they went away from their Jewish community, all their Jewish roots, everything they knew went to the land of Moab, which was a pagan place. But I can about imagine as they're going over to Moab, Naomi thinking to herself, well, at least I've got my husband. I got these boys, and this will probably just be for a season in life. And so they get over uh, to the land of Moab. And one night, Naomi gets a phone call. Ma'am, this is the police. We need you to come down and identify some bodies. Not just one body, but several bodies. And so Naomi goes down to the morgue, and there is her husband, Elimelech, and her two boys, Malon, and Kilion. They'd been there in this land. And, 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 you know, everything was going so great because when they got to Moab, these, these boys, these, these Jewish boys, they met a couple girls. They were pagan girls, but, you know, they met these nice young ladies, Ruth and Orpah. And so in, in just a moment, in a phone call, all of a sudden, here is Naomi going, oh my goodness, what do I do now? I've lost my husband, I've lost my two boys, and I've got these pagan daughters-in-law of mine. Wasn't much for Naomi to, to really do or to consider because there she is in a foreign land. And she's got to decide what she's going to do. And just she decides, I'm going home. I mean, that's what we do, Right? When everything just kind of falls apart, we want to go home back to where it's familiar, back to our people, back to our kinsmen, back to our extended family. And that made perfect sense. And so she looks at these two girls, Orpah and Ruth, and says, I'm going home. You girls stay here in this pagan land. You're pagan girls. Go marry some pagan men. Start your lives over. I'm going home. And Orpah says, okay, see ya. But Ruth says oh no, I'm going with you. Where you go, I will go. Your God will be my God. So in that moment, Ruth makes a profession of faith. She makes a decision to follow after Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it was an extraordinary move of loyalty to her mother-in-law. Why in the world would she go to this Jewish nation who is the enemy of the Moabites and follow after a foreign God? And the, the truth is, Ruth was an extraordinary woman of character. Somehow God had touched her. And so she surrendered her life and she just felt this connection to her mother in law, Naomi. She said, I'm going with you. And so these two women, Naomi and Ruth, they're walking back, they're going back home to Bethlehem. And I can about imagine as they walk into the village of Bethlehem, everybody's like, It's Naomi, she's home. And Naomi says, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Because I left this place and everything was good, but I've come back empty. Everything is broken. I've lost my husband. I've lost my boys. And oh, by the way, she's lost any kind of financial security that she might have. Because Naomi knew that when she went home as a, a single woman, She probably had only two options uh, to make money, prostitution and begging. Those were probably her options because her husband, when she lost her husband, she also lost the right of the land and the right and the ability to be able to um, make any kind of money. So they get settled in in Bethlehem, and Ruth says, hey, I'm going to go get us some food. And Naomi says, great, I'll just kind of get us settled in in the area. And Ruth goes out to a barley field, and she starts picking up some grain and gathering it to bring back to Naomi uh, to make some bread so these ladies can kind of figure out what their next steps are. So at the end of the day, Ruth comes back in from the field and says to Naomi, just kind of of matter-of-fact, hey, um, mother-in-law, here's the grain, here's the barley, let's make some food. Had an interesting day today. I was out there in the field picking up this barley And I actually met uh, the landowner. His name was Boaz. And Naomi is like, who? Boaz? Are you kidding? I mean, Boaz is actually what's known as a kinsman redeemer. He's someone in our family who might be able to help us out of this miserable, horrible situation that we're in. I wonder... I just wonder if Boaz might be able to help us out. And so just in my mind, I'm thinking that Naomi's got her Jedi interpersonal skills. Just her brain is working overtime. How do we connect with Boaz? So we pick it up in Ruth uh, chapter three, beginning with verse one. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, my daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, get dressed in your best clothes, then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. Remember that movie, uh, Fiddler on the Roof? Matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match. That's what's going on here. Naomi looks at Ruth and she's plotting how they can get out of this difficult, horrible situation. And one of the things I love about Naomi is how practical she is. Okay, here's the deal, Ruth. Take a bath. Put on some perfume. New clothes. I mean, this is not like extraordinary, you know, stuff. This is very, very practical. Paint the barn. Get ready. Don't just go down there and show up in your dirty work clothes smelling like a farm girl. But try to get his attention. Smell good. Look good. It's this coaching that Naomi gives to Ruth. You know, I've heard that uh, there are three different kinds of people. People who uh, make things happen people who watch things happen, and people who have no idea what just happened. I'm in the third category. Naomi is in the first category. She makes things happen with her words and the ways that she interacts with others and then the ways in which she coaches Ruth to do the same thing. Ruth says... "'I will do whatever you say,' Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. Notice that Ruth is very teachable and she is being obedient to her mother-in-law. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking uh, and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached uh, quietly, uncovered his feet and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? He asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. And spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. Now, culturally, this is a ve- for us, this is a very strange interaction. We look at like, this, this situation that's going on and, and we think, this is really odd. I mean, this doesn't happen today. But in their day, in their time, this whole idea of a kinsman redeemer, sometimes known, uh, some of your uh, Bible versions might even say a guardian redeemer, guardian redeemer or a kinsman redeemer. It was a category they had in their day and time that was very much a part of their culture. And it comes from Deuteronomy 25 and Leviticus 25. And so I just want to read to you so you can understand culturally what is going on. In Deuteronomy 25, it says this, "'If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family.'" her husband's brother shall take her in and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. So this is written right into the Old Testament code, into the law in terms of how these family relationships are to operate. If if, if, If a man dies, his brother is responsible. She's not supposed to go looking outside the family. And this is what it says in Leviticus. "'If a foreigner residing among you becomes rich "'and any of your fellow Israelites becomes poor "'and sell themselves to the foreigner "'or a member of the foreigner's clan, "'they retain the right of redemption "'after they have sold themselves. "'One of their relatives, however, may redeem them. "'An uncle or a cousin or a blood relative "'in their clan may redeem them.' Or if they prosper, they may redeem themselves. And so it's this idea culturally that the family is gonna take care of themselves. And this was really a way to protect women in ancient times, these, these ancient Jewish women. So oftentimes when the husband would die, They weren't just out there on their own, either having to beg or prostitute themselves, but the family was all of a sudden going to come around them. And that's this idea of a kinsman redeemer or a guardian redeemer. So the the idea was really to support and help the woman uh, and her family and all who are uh, part of uh, strengthening the entire family system. And furthermore is it's tying together the family unit you can about imagine anytime somebody said hey i'm going to get married everybody else in the family wants to know who that guy is right because if, if someone dies, then they, they got to marry that person. They're obligated, or at least there's this, this idea because, you know what, guess what? You, and I tell this to brides and grooms all the time as I'm doing premarital counseling. Hey, you're not just marrying him, you're marrying his entire family. You're not just marrying her, you're marrying her entire family. In the Bible, that's literally what was going on in Old Testament times. So it wasn't just that, oh, I'm marrying him. Oh, great, seems like a nice guy. Oh, no, because if your brother dies, you're marrying her. I mean, you can kind of see how this works and why um, this was so important in their culture and how it made their families so strong. They were invested in one another because it impacted them directly who your siblings married. So this was a really big deal, this idea of a a guardian redeemer or a kinsman redeemer. Redeemer. The Lord bless you, my daughter, Boaz replied. Your kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after uh, the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all that you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. See, there was something about Ruth, something about her character. And this idea where he says, "Um, everybody in my town knows you're a woman of character. It's the same word, same concept, same idea in Proverbs 31 about a righteous woman, a woman of character. And Boaz says, ah, it's so obvious who you are. You are a righteous woman. You're a woman of character. And he says, okay, okay. I will be your kinsman redeemer. I will be your guardian redeemer. I will marry you. I mean, she just proposed to him. That's what's going on on the on the threshing floor. She's like, "Will you marry me?" He's like, "I'll do it." And this, for us this is kind of code language because we don't get all of it. And so, you know, there's, you know, in their minds everybody's thinking, "There's going to be a wedding. This is going to be awesome." But in their culture, remember, you weren't just marrying the woman. You were marrying the entire family, and you were taking on the obligation and the responsibility to provide for everyone. So when Boaz says yes to Ruth, he's also saying yes to Naomi. I'm not only going to marry you, but I'm going to take care of your mother-in-law. I'm going to financially take care of her. I mean, this was a big deal for what's going on. And I want to make sure you understand here what, what Naomi is doing with Ruth Sure, she wants Ruth to be taken care of, but there's some self-serving purposes here for sure. A friend of mine says, Brian, there are no unselfish acts, no matter how much we do to serve and care for others. There's oftentimes a little bit in it for us, and certainly there was a little bit or a lot in it for Naomi on this uh, this day uh, when Boaz says yes to marrying Ruth. And this whole idea of a guardian redeemer, it's right at the center of it. It's this idea that someone has come to rescue them. Someone has come to save them and help them out. Now, when I I think about just this whole idea of of redeeming or or a redeemer or redemption, I think of a coupon. Just before Easter, we got a coupon in the mail, you know, hey, uh, you can get a free ham down at the grocery store. So I cut out the coupon, you know, you got to buy so many groceries and you got this coupon and you take it down there, you, you pick out the ham that you want, you take it up to the counter, you spend hordes, crazy amounts of money on your groceries, right? And then you give them your coupon for a free ham. You're redeeming that coupon. And so that coupon what that functions as something for something right there's this relationship this this transfer i just cut out this this coupon and i get uh, give it to the person the cashier and they give me that ham for free and this is the idea that's going on here in terms of redemption something for something We see this idea of redemption over and over throughout the Old Testament. And if you're thinking, gosh, this sounds a whole lot like Jesus in terms of him redeeming us, rescuing us, and saving us, that's where you're thinking. You're absolutely right. That is exactly what is going on here. And as I think about as Jesus was hanging on the cross, he's about ready to die, and he says to tell us die. It is finished. Paid in full. God, my sacrifice on the cross is a redemption for the people, all those who trust and believe in me. This redemption in in Old Testament times, in biblical times, and even today, it moves us from slavery into freedom. It's that kind of transaction uh, that's going on. So there's two more chapters of Ruth. We just kind of scratched the surface a little bit here. Lots of details, lots more stuff going on. But what you need to know at the end of the day is that Boaz does indeed marry Ruth. They get married. Everything uh, turns out awesome. And so we, we look at the life of Naomi, and her life began with tragedy and loss. But by the end of the book of Ruth, there is redemption and blessing going on. Ruth and Boaz, they get married. And they have a son. His name is Obed. And Obed, next generation, he gets married and he has a son. His name is Jesse. And Jesse has a son. And his name is David. We know him as the giant slayer David, King David. And so you can see how this one conversation, this interaction that Naomi is at the center of, coaching Ruth every step of the way, all of a sudden, Ruth becomes a part of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Because David, of course, was in the lineage of Jesus, the Messiah, See, oftentimes I think that we can look at everyday conversations, these mundane conversations, these human interactions, these interpersonal conversations that we might have, and we just think, eh, you know, doesn't really matter. But the truth is, we never know what hangs in the balance of our conversation, of our communication, of our interpersonal relationships. And I think one of the most extraordinary things uh, 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 about this story is we can't forget Ruth was a pagan when we first met her. And she marries Naomi's uh, son. God can even use a pagan woman to be a part of the lineage of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. So the takeaway for me, and I hope the takeaway for you, is that God uses our conversations. God can use our gifts for how we interact with one another in our relationships. And we don't know what hangs in the balance. And it might not be next week. It might be 20 years down the road. It might be 50 years down the road. A conversation, an interaction, a relationship that you are having today with someone, it could impact someone 100 years down the road. We never know what hangs in the balance of our relationships relationships with one another. And this is why I think interpersonal relationships are so important. And for those of us who've got like deficit in uh, uh, interpersonal communication, why all of us really need, we don't all have Jedi-like skills like Naomi, but we all can grow in our interpersonal relationships. So I just want to close this morning by giving you, I think, three ways that each one of us can grow in our uh, interpersonal gifts. Um, number one is through serving. Just serving other people. And I know Doug's got a, a, a sore uh, flower planting thing coming up uh, pretty soon. Right, Doug? Yeah. And if you've ever participated in any of the sore serving opportunities, it's wonderful. You just go out and, I mean, if you can get some dirt and a pot and a and a flower, you know, you're just... They're alongside somebody else from the SOAR community and probably some other faith people. And it's just a way to focus on a task and then some interaction with one another. And this is why we offer, one of the reasons why we offer many of these serving opportunities in the life of the church. It's not just about what we're doing there and then, but it's also about how we are connecting and growing in relationship with one another. And this is why uh, we do so much with Midwest Food Bank. If you've ever been out to Midwest Food Bank, it's the easiest task ever. And it's usually a lot of fun. There's a lot of joking around, goofing around. It's a way for us to, to, to do a task to help serve other people, but it's also a way for us to be in relationship. And the third you know, opportunity that I feel like I, I lift up all the time is carriage crossing. And we go over there the first Sunday of the month over to carriage crossing, and we uh, have a, a short worship service. It's about a 30-minute worship service. And sometimes some of you guys come, and you just sit in the congregation. You embed yourself Uh, in the congregation, that ministry of presence, and you just worship with the residents over there. And then maybe before or after, you have a little bit of conversation with folks there. But it's also a way for us to be in relationship with one another. So just serving, I think that gives us a way to practice our interpersonal skills. I can tell you, serving others uh, in the name of Jesus has helped me a lot to be less awkward. Now, I haven't arrived yet. I'm still pretty awkward uh, in, in, in those, uh, situations. But, um, I just want to invite you to consider serving. Uh, the second way is socializing, serving and socializing. And, uh, this is why we started the early 30, Come into church, uh, 30 minutes early on Sunday morning. You know, you walk through the doors and there's food and there's people. And if you're like me, it's like, oh, I don't know some of those people. And, and, uh, how do I get to know people? And this just feels awkward, right? What if I, you know, introduce myself to somebody who's like a founding member of the church, right? You're like, hey, are you new here? Right? And you're just like, oh, you know, like, no, I've been around here forever. I mean, these are the, these are a way for us to practice. And if you're a founding member of the church, be nice. I like to think that church is a place where we can come where we can gather and there's going to be lots of grace that when we make mistakes, when we do awkward things, when we say, uh, put our foot in our mouth, it's just like, it's, it's all good. It's fine, but I want to invite you to come 30 minutes early to our early 30 uh, on, on Sunday morning um, and uh, meet some other people. Now with the sabbatical coming up, uh, which is about two weeks from today, this might be a new opportunity for you throughout the summer is just to come to the early thirty. And just maybe make a goal for yourself. I'm going um, to learn the names of two new people or three new people. I'm going to learn the names of just a couple new people at Faith Lutheran Church. And I'm going to get to know a little bit of their story. And so maybe, you know, when, in, in a couple weeks when sabbatical starts for all of us, maybe you just, this is part of your, your discipleship, your spiritual journey of just getting to know some new people. And I know many of you, the faces in the congregation are familiar, but you don't necessarily know their name or you don't know uh, much about them. And so this is just come early and just be like, hey, what's your name again? I I know I've seen you. Hey, tell me your story. How long you been coming to faith? What do I need to know about faith? I'm new. Just ask some questions and get to know one another. So serving, socializing, and I wanted to make it start with an S, but cementing. (laughs) Work with me, people. Come on. Cementing, which is this idea of just really going deep in relationship with one another. This, of course, is about our life groups. Spending time together spending time together in a very intentional way. This is why the group of 12 went to Indy this past week to the discipleship conference. We feel like as a congregation, it's so important not only for us to serve uh, one another, serve in the community, it's important for us to uh, get to know each other relationally, but we want to walk and grow deep with one another. So this idea of cementing is really, really important. And we got work to do. I got work to do. Is it what it means to live into relational discipleship? I need to be challenged. I need to be uh, uh, stretched and grow in this whole area. So serving, socializing, and cementing. I think those are just three practical ways that interpersonal, we can grow in our interpersonal relationships and help and encourage one another because you never know what hangs in the balance of a conversation and of a relationship. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Naomi. Uh, God, oftentimes as we read through this story, we are laser focused on Ruth or Boaz and all those details. But God, you used a woman with incredible skills in interpersonal relationships, a woman who knew how to read the room and then coach her daughter-in-law Experience rescue and redemption. And God, if you can do that for Naomi and Ruth, you can do that for us today. So help us, Lord, to take this great story of redemption and apply it to our own lives. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer.